So, if I can be frank, this is, this is significantly weighty for me. <laughs> oh, there's so much here. Remember that at the center of the book of Revelation is this issue in which the followers of Jesus are made to feel very small because of their situation in life. The Jews are tired of being associated with the Christians. And so they have started telling on the Christians to the Romans. And the Romans and Jews have together begun to lash out against the Christians. The Romans have begun to put tests on the Christians as to whether they are truly patriots and supporters of the Roman Empire. The test is this. If they will not sacrifice, uh, if they will not make sacrifices to the Roman emperor, then they are not loyal to the empire. And so they will soon be killed because of this. The Jews have begun to throw them out of their synagogues and begun to say, <coughs> you're not us, with us. And so the followers of Jesus at this point in their lives, in this context of Rome, have begun to feel very small. It's similar to what happened actually just this past December when there was a pastor in China named Wang Yi who, with his wife and a hundred other Christians, were arrested because they, were cited, they cited subversions to the state. Christians in China right now would receive words like Jesus spoke to the church in Philadelphia. You have little power, yet you have not denied my name. This is what's going on with the Christians in Revelation. But what is happening is Jesus is being unveiled behind the scenes as the King, the Lord over the earth. And it's not just Jesus who is being unveiled in the book of Revelation. The Christians are being unveiled. Because as they endure these tribulations in faithfulness to Jesus, they will receive the crown and a kingdom just as Jesus has through his crucifixion and his resurrection. This is at the center of the book. The Christians feel very small, just as Jesus felt weak when he was being crucified by the Romans and the Jews. Yet, behind the scenes, in their faithfulness to Christ, these Christians will find victory. They will be crowned as co-rulers over the earth with Christ. So, last week, we heard that John is in exile on the island of Patmos because of his loyalty to Jesus. And he received a first vision of Christ. And in the vision, Jesus was unveiled as a lover, a groom who is seeking a passionate bride. Now, this week, we're hearing seven love letters from Jesus to his bride, the church. And if you weren't here, in that vision, there was a sword coming out of Jesus's mouth. That sword represents Jesus's word that he uses to purify his bride, the church, to clothe them in white. These letters are Jesus's sword. They contain the words that Jesus is going to use to prepare his bride for the wedding feast, the consummation of his work of new creation. And as we listen, we need to know that these were very real first century churches. 
Like the church today, they existed in a variety of conditions, contexts. But the fact that there were seven of them, this number of wholeness and completeness, it tells us, tells us that these messages are also representative of the church at all times and in all places. So these churches are representative of us too. We are one of the lampstands. Church of the Lamb is one of the churches that Jesus is speaking to in these seven letters. They apply to us too. Now for the most part, each of these letters contains three main elements. So this morning we're going to draw from all of them by looking at three common traits. So to each church, Jesus offers one, comfort, two, warning, and three, a call to conquer. So there's a lot here. We're going to jump right into them. So for the first, with most of the churches, Jesus starts by comforting them. And notice I said most of them because with Laodicea, Jesus clearly thinks what they need more than anything else is a strong kick in the pants. And so that's what he gives them. It, this reminds me of discerning how to parent sometimes. Do they need comfort right now or just a kick in the pants? And sometimes it's just a kick in the pants. That's what Jesus gives to Laodicea. But usually he comforts first. So with the church in Ephesus, he says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. With the church in Smyrna, I know your tribulation and your poverty. In Thyatira, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. How is this alone to be comforting that Christ knows? It's because Christ's knowing is the knowing of a lover. Knowing to us means having a piece of information, doesn't it? You know, we just, we're aware of something. But knowing to God means intimate acquaintance. It exists on the level of sexual relations. It is impossible for God to know us in a disinterested way. For God to know a person, to know their circumstances, is to feel the weight of them, and to be one with them in some way. This is what the psalmist has realized in Psalm 139 when he exclaims, Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowing is too wonderful for me. God's knowing is the familiarity of a committed spouse who knows the words that's coming from their lover before they say them. So Christ speaks to us as a lover, a lover who has suffered on behalf of his bride and his bride now suffers on his behalf. And he says to his struggling bride, I know. Which is to say, I love you, I'm not going anywhere, and this isn't over yet. This isn't how this ends. The churches are suffering, again, because the Jews in Rome have begun to team up on them. They're being urged to conform to the behavior of the world, and despite the heat the Christians have held out, they've remained faithful to Christ despite pressure. Now, there's one other piece 
to Jesus' comfort that we need to pay close attention to. Jesus' comfort is for their works. His comfort is for their works. Did you notice from nearly every letter that Scott read, what is it that Jesus knows about his churches? Good or bad, he knows their works. Churches are either praised or condemned by their works. Revelation as an entire book is going to force us to think hard about how a Christian's faith and actions should fit very closely together. Now, a lot of Protestants, which we are, are fairly uncomfortable talking too much about works because we're fearful of a works-based salvation where you have to earn your way to God. And I totally get that fear. It, it took me a long time but before I became convinced that God loved me aside from my own worth and well-being. But this is not what we're dealing with here. What we're talking about here is having an integrated faith, meaning the gap between our faith and our works should begin to close in to the point that our works flow naturally out of God's love and our own loyalty to him. And we absolutely believe that people are saved and forgiven through faith in Jesus. But we also believe that a saving faith is the starting point for a new kind of life. You know, if a baby doesn't grow, and we know this analogy, if a baby doesn't grow, we become concerned. We take it to the doctor, we do all the triage, we run the test, we take every measure to correct the problem. This is an urgent issue. What is wrong with this child? If a Christian doesn't grow, we make excuses or we justify, well, that's just Bob. Or worse, it's just me. It's just who I am. Or more often, we don't say anything at all. This is not simply a small matter for concern. It is heresy. It is deception. Jesus expects his people to bear fruit, and this isn't meant to throw us into a persistent state of panic and doubt. It's actually meant as a gift to bring clarity to us. Listen to the words of George MacDonald, a pastor and fantasy writer. Instead of asking yourself whether you believe or not, ask yourself whether you have this day done one thing because Christ said, do it, or once abstained because he said, do not do it. It is simply absurd to say you believe or even want to believe in him if you do not anything he tells you. If you can think of nothing he ever said as having an atom of influence on your doing or not doing, you have too good ground to consider yourself no disciple of his. But you can begin at once to be a disciple of the living one by obeying him in the first thing you can think of in which you are not obeying him. You see... God's insistence on our good works shouldn't lead us into a constant panic. It should lead us to the grace in repentance. And that's where we're going. So first, Jesus comforts his church because their works prove their worth. They are truly his people. 
his bride, and he knows them, and he loves them. But after comforting them, Jesus warns them. This is the second part of the letters. Now, I think a good way to understand Jesus' warning to the churches is to recall that when John introduces Jesus in his gospel, he introduces him as one who is full of grace and truth. Do you remember this? This is chapter 1, I believe verse 14 in the Gospel of John. He says that Jesus came and he was full of grace and truth. Jesus was this perfect embodiment of what we often see as contrasting traits. Grace and truth. He was the unique and elusive combination of kindness and firmness. You would find him to be gentle yet unyielding. Several of these churches have given themselves to only one of these traits. And they've distorted the picture of Jesus that they're supposed to be providing for the world. They failed to fully embody him. So for instance, despite all the good that can be said about the church in Ephesus, particularly their commitment to truth, their love has still grown cold. As a friend said this week, they've lost that love and feeling. They know how to preach the word, we might say in our own vernacular. But they've forgotten that the arms of Christ are stretched out toward the world. Jesus tells them they must repent and return to the works they did at first. This means works that are full of love and compassion toward the needy and the hurting. And if they do not repent, he will remove their lampstand. And who knows everything that this could mean, but surely one thing it could mean is that the church that grows cold in its love, that doesn't go out in God's spirit of mercy and grace doing good works, that church will flounder and it will die. But if Ephesus is good at truth and needs grace... Pergamum and Thyatira are good at grace, but they need truth. Both these churches have tolerated false teaching, and it's led to false worship and sexual immorality. This has put them at risk of God's judgment, and Jesus forcefully calls on them to repent and deal with the people who are compromising the church. You know, you've probably heard people make statements like this. The church is about grace. It should be about grace. The church is for sinners. And I definitely want to agree with people when they say this. But there are times when I hear this that I feel like people are trying to cut off some of Jesus' limbs. That they're trying to forget about certain things that Jesus said. It's as if we can silence parts of him and keep others. So... We like to think that good works are all about building up all positive things. But Jesus' warnings here to these churches center around an unwillingness to do the negative side of good works, which is to point out that which is evil. Jesus is telling us that our works cannot be genuinely good unless they also exhibit hostility to what is evil. That intolerance, in some cases, is a virtue. And this goes very against the grain of our world. 
Just yesterday, I received a letter from our bishop and our archbishop related to the decision in New York to legalize full-term abortions. And in both letters, our bishops are saying that it is right and good that Christians would exhibit an intolerance towards celebrations of further legalizing murder. There should be hostility toward this. Such moments call for truth and grace, not only grace. But we also need to keep in mind that our attitude toward the sanctity of life begins with our attitude toward sex. These are related. These passages go to show that every generation of the church has dealt with attempts at justifying and compromising on sexual immorality. This will always be a challenge for the church. But if we're willing to receive it, God has consistently been clear. Sexual morality is a big deal to God, not because of arbitrary rules, but because there is always a spiritual dimension to sex. When we're the most honest, we can admit this. So I was shocked to hear that the, a popular secular song from a couple years ago was called to, to, uh, to Go to Church. Take Me to Church. Was that it? And there's a line in the song that says, Worship in the bedroom. Amen. Amen. And he goes on in the song about this is the place of his worship. The vision for sexuality in the Bible intends to tell a story, a story that's set in the creation of the world, of a faithful one man plus one woman marriage that matches and reflects the oneness of heaven and earth. Revelation's grand finale is the union of heaven and earth and the union of Christ and his bride. So sexual fidelity turns out to be not only about sex, but about worship. And when we compromise on sexuality, know it or not, we also compromise on our worship. We destroy ourselves and our own soul. This is why Jesus' warnings are so forceful. Because we do damage to ourselves and we betray the one who loves us most. And Jesus' final warnings are to lukewarm churches. Mundane as it may seem, lukewarmness is as great a danger as anything else to the well-being of a church. These are the kinds of churches who could offend no one. To Sardis, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. To Laodicea, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you are either hot or cold or hot. Because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. There's still a short time for these churches to repent, but the time won't last long. And unless they repent, they'll be exposed as the frauds they are. These are not true churches of Jesus. Jesus' warnings are against churches that lack love, Churches that lack truth and churches that lack passion. There's something here for all of us, isn't there? I, I want to be really transparent for a minute. Not as if I'm not transparent in the other parts of the sermon, but very transparent. I, I think Church of the Lamb is vulnerable. I think it's very vulnerable. 
We have some personalities who are very good at truth. This is a gift. People who are resolute in their commitment to righteousness. We have others who are very good at grace, who are very good at compassion. It's wonderful. But in their extremes, both of these have shadow sides. We become vulnerable to lacking love or lacking truth. And we need each other. It's good that we're together. But if we don't listen to each other, we become very vulnerable. We need to know ourselves and we need to listen to those who are better at one or the other than we are. And we need to help each other so that we can fully embrace and fully embody Jesus' grace and his truth. Now the start to this is that some of us need to repent. This is what Jesus is calling his churches to do. If you are lacking in love and warmth, if you desire for us to turn in rather than to turn out in love, you need to repent. You need to ask Christ to warm your heart and make it soft so that you can reach out in love. You need to return to works of love and compassion. But others of you have given yourself too much grace. You've given yourself and others too much grace. You've justified sin. And you need to repent. If Church of the Lamb is not full of grace and truth, and if it is willing to die on just one of these instead of embodying both, Jesus will have harsh words for us. And so we must be careful here. Jesus longs for a passionate bride, for one who returns his love by embodying his grace and his truth. And so he warns us and invites us to return to him. He stands at our door longing to come in. And if we will repent, he's there. He will come in and he'll be with us. But transcending even his comfort and his warnings is a final call on each church to conquer. With each church, Jesus closes by urging them to endure their trials with patience and faithfulness. And if they do this, they will conquer and they will receive his rewards. So to those at Ephesus, he says, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat at the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What is Jesus promising them? He's promising them a return to Eden. That on the day he makes all things new, they will be in the paradise again and they will walk with him. As Adam and Eve walked with God. To Smyrna, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Thyatira, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Remember, Revelation is about people who feel very small being unveiled as true conquerors. As people who will be enthroned with Christ, even through their suffering. To Laodicea, to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. The messages to these churches is that when you are faithful to Christ, 
despite the difficulty that might come, you are still undefeatable. Followers of Jesus are always victors, even in the pain of it. We are titling this series in Revelation, The Unveiling of Christ and His Saints. Now, I don't usually think titles are very that important, but this time I do. Because this book is about the unveiling of Christ. But as much as it is about the unveiling of Christ, it is also about the unveiling of his people, of us whom he has redeemed and whom he will lift up. God is working in the midst of the evil of our world to move us toward a new beginning. And it started with Jesus' life, his sacrificial death and his resurrection victory. It will conclude with his return and his renewal of the world. And when he renews the world, Revelation shows us that his followers, even in our struggles and in our sense of smallness, we are on the path toward victory. That endurance with Christ is the way in which his followers are going to be enthroned with him. So Jesus is the lover at our door. He's asking to come in. He wants to sit down and dine with you and me. And in a few minutes at communion, this is what we get the chance to do. To enjoy the victory feast. The feast of the lamb of the wedding. But before you come, I want to urge you. If there is sin that is keeping you from Jesus, will you <laughs> repent? Will you? Will you let him come in and forgive you? Will you turn to this one who loves you? It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.